Hi friends, I'm Renee. I'm Claire. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Space bees, we have some changes around these parts. Uh, Anna is going to take a small hiatus from the pod. We don't know how long it's going to be yet. Don't worry, Anna is fine. She's healthy. She has not caught COVID. She just needs a little break from media consumption. I think we all realize how difficult media consumption has been in the last 800 years, it feels like. She will be on a small break, and I am super happy that there are people who have volunteered to uh, be my second chair, as Jenny likes to say on Reading the End. And today, for the first episode of 2021, I have Claire. Hello, Claire. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be uh, opening 2021. New year, same as the old year in some ways, but... At least we have left 2020 behind us. So today on the show, we're going to talk about the media that we've been consuming. We're going to talk about some 2021 stuff that we're excited about. Whether we get to it is another topic altogether. But we are excited about some things. And we'll talk about the Hugo Awards. So first up on, uh, on the agenda for today is to talk about one good thing. My one good thing is walks. I got permission from my GP to walk as much as I wanted that in a way that I could physically handle. She's like, if you're hurting in a bad way, you should stop. But until you hurt in a bad way, you should walk as much as you want. Uh, I started at a half a mile and then I've slowly added half a mile over the last few weeks. I'm now up to a mile and a half every other day. Mostly, I'm trying to like push it to every day, but I'm doing well, and it's actually making me feel much better. I feel much better. The other day, I got up, mostly because my body refused to go back to sleep. I got up at 6.15, and I walked, and it was still dark out. It was dark, and I started walking, and I told my partner and my mom that every time I made like um, a loop, because I make a loop from my house around the block and come back. Every time I hit the ha- hit my house on the loop, it would get lighter outside. So it kind of felt like as I did loops, I was powering the the world. Oh, that's adorable. I wish I could wake up that early every day, but unfortunately, insomnia makes that impossible. But it was fun to do it that one day. So that's my one good thing. Claire, what about you? Uh, so my one good thing ironically comes out of um, some extremely tedious discourse on the internet. Recently... There was some fanfiction discourse on Twitter. It was deeply, deeply tedious because it's a conversation we've had many times over. I just said no. First of all, that's also a good thing. You know, I looked at the discourse on Twitter and I was like, and not today, Satan. And so what I did instead is I went on a massive, massive binge of downloading custom content for The Sims 4. Basically sat in front of my computer watching YouTube on one monitor and on the other monitor I had so many tabs open of custom content to download. So that's basically mods that people have made of items, clothes, hair styles for The Sims 4 and people create like stuff packs and and things like that. People create legit, this is a full-on pack as you would buy from the company but it's custom made by fans and it is free because I was doing that very very much as a like you know what this thing I'm gonna do it's gonna bring me joy instead of yelling on twitter about fan fiction because everybody else is already doing it and it's not worth my time and that made me think of you know custom content and modding as a as a fan work as a transformative work that's done by a community for the community Obviously, it has a certain relation with capitalism because it's it's a game that's made by a company that's very famous for like selling you a whole bunch of packs. You know, The Sims is a expensive addiction. 
But, you know, when I was in high school, I was into tabletop role-playing miniatures, and that is more expensive. I'm going to take my current obsession is less expensive than Warhammer miniatures, so. But anyway, now I have a lot of cool furniture in my sims game i opened up the sims 4 the other day and i was like there's so many new things it feels like i've bought like five different packs but it just made me feel so tender about the sims 4 community and just the fact that you know there's people who have these wonderful skills to make stuff that they have probably taught themselves because they love this game so much and they want to make stuff to share with other people it made me really happy and also i have a lot of really nice kitchen counters now and the kitchen counters in the game are so bad agreed i don't understand why the sims 4 team has not put out an entire kitchen line that like improves the kitchen items because right now it's atrocious so many bars so many new toilets we don't need a new toilet in every pack just give us more kitchen stuff. Anyway. Those are really good things for both of us. It brings us happiness to go on walks and to download custom content. And that's great. That's perfect. Space Bees, we want to know what your one good thing is. It helps, I think, in these times to hear that other people have good things too. Next up, we're going to talk about the media we've been consuming. Claire, do you want to go first? I want to thank Renee for changing this segment from what we're reading to media because my note in the document was lol water books because I've really been struggling with reading, which is uh, a problem if you make content that's about books like I do. I did actually start two books in 2021. I've not finished either of them yet, but I did actually start some books, which is something that I hadn't done in several months. So I'm, I'm quite happy with that. The first book that I started is a little tiny nonfiction book called I Hate Men by Pauline Armange. I'm reading this because my partner's mom gave it to me for Christmas. Oh, one of those. <laughs> well, it says on the dust jacket, the book that was almost banned in France. And, you know, I'm French, so I think she thought it was amusing. And it's fine. I mean, it is kind of like very, very basic. Like, it's very 101. The whole thing is about this woman saying that, like, basically she hates toxic masculinity, but she is phrasing it as I hate men. And obviously she goes into, like, what she actually means by I hate men, but going into that statement and how abrasive it is and how making that statement in itself is such a big deal... I think in the first chapter, it's like, well, women never say they hate men. And I'm like, what women are you hanging out with, mate? Like, it makes the point that it's not man. It's like the things that society encourages men to do. You know, if anybody listening to Fangarpia was inclined to go hashtag not all men, it addresses that. But like, it just really feels like a book by someone who has just discovered that actually there are still quite a few shitty things about being a woman, even if you're a pretty solidly middle-class white woman. It's like fairly privileged feminism. <laughs> like it's fully fine and I want to read it because it was a gift. And I don't want to be like, I've not read, you know, I'm not going to tell all of that to my partner's mom. Like, I'm not going to do her the feminist analysis of this book. Last year, I read Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall, which is a book about how middle class privileged white feminism leaves so many women on the side of the road because it's not doing the work of intersectionality. And so that book's very much fits into that. But it's also very short. And I haven't read a book literally in three months or more. So I'm gonna bloody finish it. The next thing that I've just started reading is much happier book. As I say this, I realize probably it's not, but at least it's making me happier. And that is Death Sets Sail by Robin Stevens. This is the ninth and final book in the Murder Most and Ladylike series, which is a middle grade series about 
two girls, young women, who are detectives in 1930s England. They go to this posh boarding school and they have like midnight cake eating parties and they solve murders. It's such a delightful series. I love it. Books about kid detectives when I was growing up, the lines of, you know, Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and stuff like that, those were not books where the characters were growing and changing and evolving and having a proper character arc because, you know, they're packaged books. The line is endless. I'm really sad that this series is ending because I love these girls so much. However, I think it's just wonderful to have a series like this with an actual arc and character growth and they change and I just... I'm so, so, so happy whenever I see a kid in my life reading those books. In fact, I think several of my nieces on both sides are reading those books. So that makes me super happy. Uh, There is also a discussion in one of the later books, but not not this one. Um, Like I think book six or seven about uh, one of the two main girls figuring out that she is into girls so that is cool and this is the last book and there was a lot of discussion on social media before this book came out about how uh this book takes place in Egypt because the girls travel there but only one of them comes back and I was just like I'm not sure my poor heart who hasn't read a book in three months can handle one of those precious children who I adore dying in this book. I did what our good friend Jenny at Reading the End advocates and I read the end because I thought whether or not it's a tragic ending, I will, you know, I just need to know one way or the other so I'm prepared when I go into the book. Obviously, I'm not going to say. After doing that, I actually felt a lot more, just a lot more equipped to read the book and really enjoy it without being like worrying all the time about this one thing. I realize that's not the experience you're supposed to have, but I am fragile right now. So that's what it did. Anna loved that series. I don't know how far she had read into it, but I know she talked about like the first or second book and she was very, very charmed and recommended them very highly. And they're middle grade, right? They're middle grade books? Yeah, they are middle grade. So I think when it starts, the girls are, I want to say 11. I think it's like they're in middle school. I'm not sure. You know, they they just grow up and there's a lot of really cool recurring characters. There's a lot of cool women. I was absolutely charmed by every single one of them. And the mysteries are really, really good. Just looking forward to delving deeper into this one, obviously. I've just started it and it's already uh, just making me so happy that it exists. Uh, Speaking of happy that this thing exists, I wanted to talk about how much I've been watching uh, Little Simsy on YouTube. She's a Sims YouTuber uh, and she is just delightful, but also, you know, talks about stuff like mental health. But she, she just makes really cute sims videos you know she is currently doing a legacy challenge which is where you start with one sim and then you play 10 generations of that sims family but she's doing it on short lifespan in the sims you can decide that your sims have average normal medium lifespan or short or long uh, and that determines the amount of in-game days that they spend in each life stage and short lifespan is hilarious because the sims spend like 10 in-game days being adults or something like that you know oh you were a toddler for like a day and a half and now you're (laughs) aging up to child (laughs) it's very frantic because of that the sims is for all its faults it just gives you sometimes like such ridiculous storytelling beats because of stuff that happens there's a glitch that makes people wee fire her sims are going to the bathroom and then the toilet's on fire because they weed fire i'm a simple human i find that very funny i am always amazed at all the people on youtube who find all these challenges to do that's hardcore fantasy behavior 
and they're so creative. I work for a YouTube channel for my day job. I look at it as this is great entertainment. You can't help but seeing things in a different way if like you have the experience of making the thing or you know once you start reading critically and analytically you can't stop. I also look at Kayla who does the channel Little Simsy and it's like she's really really good at being a presenter at being on camera at being personable and she just has really fun ideas the way that the balance of the channel works she makes videos every day which is not very common for people who do sims 4 content or at least like the bigger channels if you do know sims 4 channels that publish every day that you love please let me know because i would like to add them to my list with Little Simsy, I look at what she does and I'm like, oh, you're you're really good at your job, like objectively, because, you know, making game videos on YouTube, making gaming videos, people who don't know what the job entails will say things like, oh, you play video games for a living or whatever. There's a lot of really technical stuff going on and she just has a really good model and she also raises a lot of money for charity. So I just like her. She's cool. And my last thing that I've really been enjoying lately is WandaVision, which is the new MCU show about Wanda and Vision. And it's a show that I've heard a whole bunch about, you know, before it started coming out. I've only seen the first couple episodes at this point because that's what's out uh, at the time of recording. It's not a show that I was personally super excited about because Wanda's fine in the MCU. Like, she's not great in Age of Ultron, but who is? honestly. Vision as a character, I'm just like, I never got super attached to them as characters in the movies. Their romance in the movie doesn't get like a lot of time to shine. I also happened to read one of the comics about them that was on the finalist list for the Hugos a couple years back and I just really didn't get along with it. I know that other people who are really into comics absolutely loved it. I didn't enjoy the experience of reading it. Like I could see it was doing interesting stuff but I was like, this is not fun. The problem with Vision and Wanda together is that men should not write romance because they haven't done the homework. (laughs) I don't know if the new show is like that at all, but for like Wanda and Vision as a couple in the comics or in the movies, you can tell a man wrote this. Hire a romance writer. That's very true. It continues to baffle me fully that the MCU contains romances like Steve and Peggy, which really, really works. But then it also contains things like most other MCU romances that just don't. And that it also will include something like that one scene between Steve and Sharon Carter in Winter Soldier. I'm sure they wrote it thinking, oh, this is the scene where Steve Rogers fails to get a date with this lady. But actually what it comes across as is this is the scene where Steve asks a woman out and she says no thank you and he's like really respectful about it and like actually did it in a way that left her a lot of room to say no thank you and then next movie it's like let's get together at my great aunt's funeral anyway it's fine it's fine it's fine it's fine i'm not bitter one division was in fact delightful for people who are not up to date with the mcu spoilers I guess. I really really enjoyed them a lot more than I thought I would. My partner was really excited for WandaVision and I was just kind of like I don't want to rain on your parade so I'm going to absolutely go along with watching the first couple episodes as soon as they're available but I'm not like super excited for this. All the promo and the trailers the pictures and all of that made it look like this is just a pure like spoof of basically bewitched right and others but Bewitched is the one that we had in France, so that's the one I'm vaguely aware of. And the first episode is very, like, straightforward pastiche in that way, but it has these threatening notes at times where you, like, very clearly it brings back, hey, actually, this is a show about a really, really powerful witch and her boyfriend who's dead. And it also, like, it moves. It's not 1950s sitcoms the whole time, like... It goes 1950s and then it goes 60s and like the next episode 100% is going to be 
like more 70s style. There is a promo picture of one of the actors in full 80s gym getup, you know, like with leg warmers and big curly hair. That show has amazing actors in it. Obviously, you've got Elizabeth Olsen uh, and Paul Bettany doing really, really good acting. Again, like way more than they get to do in the films, right? Paul Bettany gets to do funny and charming, which is delightful. Many like laugh out loud moments because he is, you know, still a robot who is trying to pretend that he's not a robot. Then you've got Elizabeth Olsen who has this role to play Again, she's a very powerful witch. This is not real because her boyfriend is dead. And also she's a witch. You know, it's just like, there are many characters who are not who they look like they might be. And we get to like discover who it is. There's a lot of amazing actors. There's the mom from that 70s show. There's Anya from Buffy. There's people that you look at and you're like, oh, I've definitely seen you in something. One of the main people apart from Wanda and Vision is Catherine Hahn. Uh, she plays their neighbor, Agnes. I'm not sure if I should be that surprised that it's really good because it's obviously a show that's had like a lot of money behind it. But at the same time, they've written really bad stories, have the MCU. And this is looking really good. I'm excited to see where it goes. And those are my things. I have read some books. Uh, I've read Network Effect by Martha Wells, the novel set in the... Murderbot Diaries universe. I loved it to death. It was wonderful. It was the perfect length. In fact, I would read a ton more novels set in this universe. The next book in the series, Fugitive Telemetry, is a novella again. The thing that Martha Wells did that was genius is that she wrote a novel full of stuff that she could pull a bunch of novellas out of, like storyline-wise. So maybe we could just get a novel, four novellas, another novel, another four novellas, like forever. And I would be fine with that. And I would hope that Tor would be totally okay with continuing to pay her for that. Just, just continue forever. Co-signed, absolutely. <laughs> One of my favorite things in Network Effect was the friendship aspect, which I did not expect going in, but it ended up being like my favorite part. And the nature of collaborative community and relying on people and trusting one another. It was just really, really good. I just really loved everything about it. Although, heads up to people who don't want to read about like infections that transmit easily. Uh, maybe don't read this book because that, that that features that's a feature of this this novel. But like ninety nine out of ten stars for Network Effect. I'm very amused by the fact that you said you didn't expect to be really enjoying the robot pal aspect of the book. Yes, it's very much a Robot Pals book in a way I didn't expect because I thought it was going to be more like Murderbot and humans, but it turned out not to be so much that. It is that, but not only that. The next book I read was a nonfiction book called Give People Money by Annie Lowry. This is a book about UBI, Universal Basic Income, and unfortunately for me, I was like more or less aware of all the things that she cites as far as attempts to make UBI work. Like, I've read all about those. So, like, there's one in Kenya. There's some in India. India system always wigs me out because, like, you go and you, like, they scan your retina and your fingerprints. It's just very, uh, no. And then the one, like, the one in Canada, um, the one in Stockton, California. And so I'm aware of all the ones she talks about. And I was actually... A little nervous because I was like, okay, if you're going to talk about UBI, you obviously have to talk about the United States and how a UBI system would not work here because white people cannot handle helping poor people who they demonize. And they also cannot handle black folks or they can't handle anybody non-white getting what the quote unquote a handout. And she does touch on it. She touches on race she touches on gender she sort of mentioned this disability but not as much as i kind of wanted her to a universal basic income would have to take into account that some people need more resources than other people a lot of the ubi folks who talk about ubi also talk about getting rid of social security snap benefits social security disability wic 
like all these social programs, they would just want these social programs out and put everybody on this universal basic income program. And I'm like, that would never work. Like it wouldn't be functional. The U.S. system, uh, our social safety net is so messed up because the Republicans have been undermining it for about 40 years that we would need like a hybrid system. And the book really didn't really cover that. It just mostly talked about how a UBI would help pull a lot of people out of poverty. How are you going to pull people in America out of poverty without addressing healthcare and student debt? You know, and I'm not going out here like, oh, England and France are so much better. It's not. I do think UBI is a good idea pretty much everywhere. But like, it has basic in the name. It shouldn't replace every single type of welfare. Okay, I, I haven't actually like studied it, so I don't know what it should replace. But it's very, very obvious that like, it should be a start because it has basic in the name. <laughs> well, I encourage everybody to read as much as you can about UBI and start asking your representatives or candidates for office in your area if they support UBI to get that Overton window moved. Would you have any recommendations for places to learn about UBI if you're someone <laughs> like me who thinks, yes, that sounds good, but doesn't actually know like a lot of facts about it or all those experiments you talked about or places where it's been implemented. Well, this is a good book to start with if you wanted, because she references, she's got in notes and she references all the things that she talks about. But I can also put some resources in the show notes so like I can collect some because a lot of them are like studies and they're like, they have very long titles. Thank you. You can learn all about it. I love UBI conversations, mostly because I like telling economists that they, they have fake jobs. <laughs> my next item is not a book it is hr1 for the people act of 2021 it does a lot of different things i have only gotten through part of it i live in arkansas and in arkansas this bill would fix a lot of things plenty of republicans won in my state and they are already introducing a bill to change the voting laws to make them more restrictive so as an example, you show up to vote here in our state and you have to have an ID. If you don't have your ID with you, you can fill out a ballot and sign it. The bottom of it acts as an affidavit. You're swearing under risk of perjury that you are who you say you are and your ballot will count. Even though the Republicans won, they have a supermajority in the state legislature. They are pushing a bill that would get rid of that process. So if you show up to vote, you don't have an ID, you can't vote. You either, you either have to come back later or don't vote at all. When I try to tell people that they're like, oh, fascism isn't here. Yes, it is. You only have to look at any state run by GOP electeds to see the fascism. I know that there were people four years ago saying, oh, it's not going to be fascism, y'all, blah, blah, blah. You're making it too big. It's really hard to look at what's been happening in the U.S. recently and not see fascism. And I don't know if it's because I'm European and we study a lot of fascism in Europe, but it's very bad. It's not just this is like fascism. You have Republican people saying like that Hitler did some things right. You have insurrectionists wearing Camp Auschwitz shirts. It's not like fascism. They're just Nazis. I'm very excited about this bill in particular. HR1 would require that states let people register to vote online. In my state, you cannot register to vote online. You have to print a form and fill it out and mail it in or go to a county clerk's office to, to register to vote. You also, in Arkansas, currently cannot vote unless you're registered 30 days before an election. HR1 would mandate same-day registration. HR1 would make it illegal to make false statements about federal elections like lying that they were rigged. Yeah, that's a lot. A lot of the drama in 2020 was because a lot of Republican legislatures, specifically a lot of people might think of Pennsylvania in this case, they passed rules saying you couldn't start counting absentee ballots until the day of the election. That was true for Arkansas too. I worked the absentee ballot day um, on election day. Because of the rules, you had to separate all the ballots from the IDs. So there was like a huge process. It was very time consuming. So when we had election week back in November, the reason that we were having election week was because a lot of these Republican legislatures said, you can't count these ballots until election day, knowing that there were going to be excessive amounts of absentee ballots because of the pandemic. And HR1 says, you can process and scan these two weeks before the election. You don't have to wait anymore. And obviously, if you had that in this election, 
then there wouldn't be as much of a red mirage where it looks like someone's one who's not bloody one. And another problem we had at Arkansas was that you had to put your own stamp to mail in your absentee ballot. You have to pay to vote? Yeah. HR1 says that states have to prepay for postage. So anyway, HR1 is doing a lot to get rid of voter suppression tactics that Republican legislatures are using to suppress the vote. I recommend everybody go go read it. Go read it in full. Take the time. Get a cup of tea. Settle in. Read it. And then tell your representative, whoever they are, to support it. Literally the reason that we have QAnon Congress people in Congress right now is because of gerrymandering that the Republicans have done and voter suppression that the Republicans have done. I read a really interesting article that somebody linked in our joint Slack. It might have been you, I don't recall. But it was about the way that because the Republican Party does not need to have a majority of the votes in order to win, then it is not in their interest to get more votes. Like it's not in, it's in their interest to appeal to the fringe, basically, of their party. It's in their interest to push to get those people on the sidelines. It's not in their interest to be big tent and extend the hand out because, like, you know, they don't need to have more people in order to win. This whole article was basically saying, like, if you got rid of the Electoral College, if you did any of those things that Republicans, when they hear about it, they go like, but if you did that, we would never win again. It's like, yeah, if you did that, if we did that, then you'd actually have to have policies that people agree with in order to win. Again, I live in the UK. I'm a British citizen. And you look at the Tories who've been in power for so long and have depleted the NHS. Child poverty is skyrocketing. It's just the same story, just a little bit more coded in being really posh. (laughs) Anyway... I hate Tories. I hate fascists. And it sounds like Tories are pretty fascist these days. Oh, no, they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wouldn't be Hugo season unless there was something to talk about. Every year when the Hugos start ramping up, there is always a discourse. It's like winter is coming, but Hugo discourse is coming. It's that. The big drama that happened was that some of the Discon Hugo administrators decided that they were going to limit the name on statues and some of the virtual cards. It did not go over well. It immediately got pulled. And just when you thought that Okay, they've resolved it. One of the resigning chairs posted like a flounce letter, an actual flounce letter. It's been so long. Listen, I grew up on Fandom Wank and I've seen some flounces, but this one was like chef's kiss flounce. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was so resolved and then flounce. I was very mad about that weird idea that they were going to have to like limit the names on the statues because teams were too big which comes out of the fact that a lot of teams these days need a lot of people because a lot of teams are marginalized folks and they need a lot of people to put together really good work. Lady Business is not a super diverse team. We have white people and gender diverse people. We need all of us to accomplish the things that we're doing. Under the policy that was proposed, Lady Business would have had to like chop somebody off of the award materials. There's also a question as well of ability and neurodiversity that comes into it as well because a lot of people wish to do a lot of good work and they just don't have the spoons, the resources, uh, whether that be, you know, emotional or just the time or they are already exhausted because of work. Especially in the year... 
after having had the year 2020, it feels really weird to have that. Is there a discussion to be had about the fact that having a different number of people in teams winning Hugo's means that we have to make changes? Yeah, of course. Do we need to have the discussion framed in a way that makes it sound like, oh, we have too many finalists. Those teams are too big. No, we can absolutely do that in a different way. This particular piece of discourse happened because the change that they were proposing, they were communicated really, really, really poorly. It didn't seem like they were saying what it was that they were actually going to do. And then they said it was for a reason, but it was clearly not that. I mean, there's just... It was a huge mess in terms of just the communications of it. Why do we have to make it a policy thing? Can it not be a case-by-case sort of thing? Anyway, it was rightly shut down and then there was an apology that was actually quite good, that was acknowledging the fact that people had been hurt by this, which was great. You can't minimize the fact that people, particularly in the fan categories, because that's where it applies the most, felt like it was minimizing the work that they were doing if they were not like one genius person managing to do the thing on their own. I just questioned what risk management they had done. There seemed to be like so many solutions. Oh, Hugo trophies are too expensive. Okay, well, during registration, ask people if they want to donate $5 or $10 to help cover the costs of the extra statues. If you're having trouble fitting a bunch of names on the trophy, why don't you just ask people to put their own name and the project name on the trophy instead of the whole project's name and all the people related to the projects. There were solutions that you could have found in a basic risk management process. I hope that the Hugo administrators going forward do a better job of risk management. I continue to think that Worldcon as an entity needs some oversight is probably not the right word, but it would be nice if there were a communications team that could help as part of the Mark Protection Committee because stuff like this that embarrasses the convention hurts the mark. It It's abusive toward the name and the reputation of the award and the con. So why in the heck don't you have something to protect that that regards communication? Because that seems to be the thing that hurts the mark the most. Well, I think there's two things, right? Like you were saying, it's not exactly oversight, and I agree. I think for me, it's more like continuity. A lot of the annoyance that came from this is that this isn't the first time we've had this conversation. We've had this conversation over and over again as a fandom for for, uh, several years. And, you know, I come from an IT background, so my immediate question is, but where was the QA team on this? You know, you need to put it past some people who have no idea what the question is, what the decision that we're discussing is. You bring people who've not talked about it previously with you so that they don't have the whole of the discussion, but people who are in the fandom so that they are aware of the discussion that's been going on the past few years. And you can bring people, you know, from like various, quote, sides of fandom. You know, you can bring people who maybe are... um, involved in those bigger teams uh, on on fan works. You can bring people who maybe have been in fandom for a super long time and don't mind things kind of remaining the way they are or changing to be more like the old days or whatever. I want to be careful not to put too much judgment in those two things because I'm clearly on one side rather than the other, you know, so I don't want to be like the woke youngsters and then the old farts because number one, I don't count as a youth anymore, I don't think. (laughs) But, you know, bring people in who've not been deeply involved in the process of making the thing and say, hey, what do you think people on Twitter are going to say? And it sounds glib to put it like that and to say, oh, Twitter is going to have the last word. But like, we're in a pandemic. This is where this conversation is going to happen. I think you're right. I think it damages the reputation of the convention and the awards to be having these conversation again and again and again, because people who uh, get hurt by this type of thing, and they tend to be marginalized people, look at 
us, you know, Worldcon, the Worldcon fandom. I have to say, I'm actually a volunteer for Discon 3 with the program. I think I haven't said that at the top. So just as a disclaimer, uh, I was not at all involved in any of the stuff that we're talking about today because I'm, you know, just volunteering with, uh, with program. But I consider myself a part of this. And for me, I'm just like, we have failed because you get people, like really prominent people who've said, no, I'm not going to go to Worldcon because it's not welcoming or safe. I don't have a good experience there. And for me, a person who has an excellent experience at Worldcon, you know, and I say this even with the issues that we had at last year's uh, Worldcon where it was not as good as it sometimes is, you know. I bloody love Worldcon, you know. And it just bothers me so much that we are not bringing more people in instead we are shutting people out like i just can't i just want to bring everybody in and over the last few years worldcon has not stayed the same but it's been slower to change but the hugos have exploded the internet is a thing now and you can pull in wider fandom communities for example the ao3 and I think it's uh, something where, you know, there was a sufficient number of uh, already present fans who were also fans on the archive who were in that Venn diagram of both of the fandoms. Maybe if it hadn't been for an influx of new people, the archive would have been, you know, second or third or whatever and not one. I don't know. But it's not like it's like a brand new thing that was never there. As we tend to say, we've always been there. There've always been marginalized people, people of marginalized gender, and indeed, like fan fiction fans in SFF fandom. I'm not making an equivalency between being marginalized and fanfic fandom. That's not the case at all. It's not a change that comes out of nowhere. It's just an evolution of who we are as a fandom by bringing more people in who, by all rights, should be in this Worldcon fandom with us. Like, there's no, it doesn't make sense for those people to not be there. And there's so many things as well like that. You know, the situation we're in right now with the pandemic and we've all of these conventions having to, like, happen online, there's so many opportunities to bring more people in as well. And I just want us as a community to be taking those opportunities. The pandemic has changed con culture, I suspect, forever. Like, running cons is hard. Running cons during a pandemic, I can't express how difficult it must be to, like, kind of want to do that. Like, I want to extend, like, the benefit of the doubt to con organizers, but I also want con organizers to realize that a lot of us are trapped at home. Earlier you said, oh, well, why ask people on Twitter? Well, it's because Twitter is basically our social space because we're all trapped at home. When we're all trapped at home, we're all stressed out, we're all frazzled, a lot of us had really shitty years. And so we opened 2021 with a policy that that goes, mm, hey, you don't matter that much. That sucked. And I'm glad they fixed it. And I hope we don't have to do it again. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to stress as well, that like con running is difficult. In the case of Worldcon, it's all done by volunteers. In the case of a lot of science fiction conventions that are like of that type, you know, with panels and stuff like that, like not media conventions where you're going to get like your autograph with a famous actor or something, because those are different and they generally run more for profit. Whereas science fiction conventions where you go to listen to like five authors talk about world building, that tends to be a different structure and that tends to be fan organized and fan run and you know the pressure is incredible the team at con zealand for all that there were some failings like you have to see the team for con zealand had been bidding to bring Worldcon to new zealand for like 10 years they had been working on this for so so long and throughout all that time they had the idea that, you know what, 
it's going to be a Worldcon like other Worldcons, but in New Zealand. And instead, they had to do something completely unprecedented by taking the convention fully online. And they had to do it in a relatively short amount of time. I was quite impressed at the time when they announced that they were taking the con virtual by how early they did it. And I suspect that that must have been because the uh, agreement they had with their hotel was waived by the hotel. I don't know um, if there was at that time like regulations in New Zealand forbidding um, big gathering because that's also part of the issue there is that it's a not-for-profit fan-run organization that's coming up against the contracts that they have with a hotel that was never formulated to include what happens if there's a global pandemic and it's not safe to gather this many people in a conference space, you know? And that, I cannot imagine the levels of stress of something like that. And, I mean, I went through it with SF3 in Wisconsin, and it was unpleasant. Shout out to any nonprofit board that runs a convention. Discon is still going through it, right? Because they just released an email telling us, hey, we want to give you an update on the con, but we can't for legal reasons because of problems with like hotel contracts. Thing with a convention like WizCon, which is in Madison, Wisconsin, every year, and presumably in the same hotel. I don't know because I've never been able to go. I would really, really like to go at some point, but I've never been yet. If it's in the same hotel, you have a bit more leeway to say to the hotel, hey, look, you know, we've been here for the last like five years or whatever. We obviously need to cancel this year because it's not safe to do but we promise that you know if you let us cancel without incredible high fees we'll be back for the next three five years or whatever you know you can do that whereas Worldcon and I'm not a lawyer nor a person who's ever ran hotels for a convention so I don't know if you can actually do that how it works you know I've I've never actually done that so I imagine you probably can do that if you're in the same city but because Worldcon moves city to city you're stuck just saying to a hotel we want to cancel this entire contract and obviously the hotel industry you know is not doing great in the pandemic although of course a big hotel chain corporation isn't the same at all as a non-profit fan-run organization but you can see how it's going to be really really difficult because like you know if you've signed a contract saying we're gonna go and be in this place and then you send a newsletter to your people saying actually we're canceling you are saying that you're going to be in breach of contract so you just can't do that and I feel so bad because like it's not a clear-cut situation with like a, a goodie and a baddie I mean, you know, the giant hotel corporation that's not letting a convention out of its contracts is probably the bad guy. But, uh, you know, that's just me and my opinions. And I'm not at all speaking on behalf of the convention. Yeah, it's difficult for fans because you can't organize like what's going to happen in the summer, in the winter, because you don't know when the convention is going to be or if it's going to have any kind of an in-person element, if that's possible or safe. It's difficult for staff because it makes uh, planning really, really tricky. Like, I'm on program team. You have to ask people to volunteer for program without knowing when the convention is going to be. That's a tricky proposition, you know? And then it's uh, really tricky for the people who have to deal with that hotel mess as well, like the people who I hire up in in the convention, and then have to answer to all of us as well about it. Like, it's just not a great situation for anybody involved. And I hope that it can be resolved without having uh, too much uh, difficulty for the con. And I hope we know soon. <laughs> With Wiscon, the problem wasn't changing cities, changing hotels. It was that the hotel that we used was union-run. It was a union hotel. And I think we were worried that they just wouldn't survive the pandemic and they wouldn't be there anymore. Canceling a contract on like a union-run hotel that's independent, that's not part of a chain, is like a different beast than dealing with like a chain hotel corporation that maybe could handle the loss of a contract. And I don't envy any con runner any of these decisions. I do think that this whole situation, the pandemic, has changed con culture probably permanently. 
we saw in 2020 a lot of the cons go online. Wiscon went online. Uh, Condilan went online. Uh, Fiacon did a thing online. Uh, you were one of the organizers for Condilan Fringe. When all of these cons started announcing going online, I was kind of excited because, like, I work online, I live online, I'm a capital letters very online person. And so I thought, you know what, we're going to get to see something a bit different. Like, obviously, you can't replicate the in-person convention experience online, but I don't think that should necessarily be the goal. I'm kind of excited for seeing all the things that can come out of this period um, where all those cons have to be online. I'm excited to see what comes out of that in terms of, like, new types of convention events or whatever that are like specifically tailored to be online and as you said many conventions were uh, online in 2020. Firecon was my best convention experience of the year. It was just really amazing. Just a really welcoming and fun discord to be in throughout the, the con and just really really interesting panels. Obviously I did enjoy working on Fringe uh, but then I was working on that uh, with with my uh, co-creators quite a lot. So Firecon was a lot more relaxing than Fringe for me. Con Zealand put out their program and the program was going to be in New Zealand time. There were some things that uh, didn't make it onto the program. There was no discussion of a booktube on the program and you know me and some other friends just really wanted to talk about the fan categories and you know what's going on these days specifically like in podcasts and in fanzines and we wanted to be able to have like some 201 conversations you know like not always the same like on podcasts cool sort of panel that you see at every con and so we just kind of came up with like fantasy panel ideas of like the you know something that we'd want to see and then we were like but we don't have to like rent a hotel we can just like do live streams on youtube we can just invite people we know and do live streams on youtube what is really exciting to me is that kind of like lowering of the barriers to entry of course there still are plenty like you need to have a stable internet connection to be able to access all of this and that is not a given but it is still something that gives you a lot more chance to to make your event accessible. One thing that I'm super excited about is uh, Flights of Foundry, which is a online convention uh, run by the Dream Foundry. I didn't make it to Flights of Foundry 2020, but one thing I really appreciated is they had a whole debrief video on YouTube saying what they had done, what they had done well, what they hadn't done well, what they were planning to change. Like, you know, I'm a nerd about con running, so I thought that was super interesting. The con is happening again. It doesn't require registration, so it's free to attend. Uh, they have also asked me to be a guest of honor for their booktube and uh, nonfiction podcasting track, which I am still baffled and delighted about. So that is going to be a thing. And Flights of Foundry is happening in mid-April, but then you are also going to have another Firecon in 2021 in mid-September. So, you know, that is just really, really exciting to see. And Firecon, of course, is organized by Fire Magazine, the magazine of Black Speculative Fiction, which is an amazing award-nominated magazine that is not that hard to pronounce. Just like the stuff that is coming out of this field is really, really exciting. I feel like I, I accidentally said Fringe is so exciting and now I can't take it back because it's like negative self-talk if I do and you're going to yell at me. Yeah, you can't take it back. <laughs> Fringe is very exciting. Even Discon, which is happening this year, and who knows that they have an in-person component given how the United States is handling vaccination. But they did announce in the email that they sent out that they are committed to having like a virtual experience. And the email said, this means having at least three streaming programming items per convention hour. That seems really cool. And I'm actually curious, like once cons can start happening in person again, how that's going to change how cons operate. Because I think it would be really fun because the reason that I got into Wiscon 
was because I started following the panels being live tweeted with hashtags on Twitter. And I would follow the, the, the panelists through the people who were talking about the panel while they were there. And it was super neat thinking about like the future of conventions and how convention runners could look at Fringe and Condeland and Wiscon and Fiacon and what was the other one? Flights of Foundry? Yeah. Look at how they do the things that they're doing and seeing how they can adapt it to a offline experience for people who are there, but also people who can't be there. And I think that's just really, really fascinating. And I'm interested to see where it goes. And the thing is also, we've been talking about Worldcon, which a bunch of people in the US started in the 40s, but they decided to say world in the name. And now we're trying to make the world bit of Worldcon actually happen. As you mentioned, Worldcon moves uh, cities and now countries very regularly. And that is great. However, it still could be so much more accessible to all of the world because sometimes people can't get visas to travel to Worldcon. Sometimes people can't afford to travel to Worldcon. Sometimes Worldcon is happening and you're trying to like follow it online, but it's happening in the opposite time zone to you, which was another big driver behind uh, Conzealand Fringe because all the programming was in Conzealand time and a lot of us organizing it were in the UK. And so we could only get the first and last programming items pretty much before it started going into like I can attend this item but I will hate myself in the morning for going to bed this late you know part of the pandemic which the disabled community has pointed out several times has been oh we asked for all these accommodations and you guys said it wasn't possible but it actually was possible this whole time it's going to be a lot harder for cons in the future to go, oh, well, that's not possible for us because we're an in-person convention. What we're looking at in the future is cons having a virtual arm who work on adapting virtual material as part of the convention experience for people who cannot be there in person. I did go back and read about Fringe. Now that we're in Hugo season, there have been lots of conversations about how Fringe is 100% eligible for a Hugo Award as a fan, a piece of fan work, which I think is great. What do you think about it, Miss Fringe co-organizer? They probably can see me blushing through uh, the podcast. No, I mean, it's amazing. Like, we didn't think about that at all when we were making Fringe. But then somebody pointed out on Twitter, it might be eligible for best related work. Certainly, if people feel like they want to put that on their ballot, that would be much appreciated but there are also so many other like amazing things to nominate under best related work or elsewhere i am definitely going to look into the eligibility for stuff like viacon we didn't even have time to talk about their awards that they ran the ignite awards because those were really really cool as well but I just wanted to also point people in the direction of where they can uh, get some ideas for things that they might want to nominate and maybe some information on eligibility. In fact, someone probably has already done the work of looking up whether Firecon is eligible or not. And if they have, I suspect I will find the answer to my question in the fantastic Lady Business Hugo Spreadsheet of Doom. Why don't you talk about it a bit, Renee? I got really frustrated by the fact that it was really hard to find out eligibility for some of the categories. So I was just like, hey, why don't I just make a little crowdsource spreadsheet? I actually did two interviews this year where I talk like more in depth about like the founding of the spreadsheets. I have found that it really helps people not struggle so much with trying to remember things that they loved because they can just like read something they can come they add it to the spreadsheet if they liked it and then at the end of the year they can come back and they can just browse through all the other stuff that people have added and they can go oh I didn't realize that was out this year I loved that or oh wow there's all this new stuff I can check out before uh, nominations close by making it a crowdsourced document we all help each other and that's like one of my favorite things about fandom and one of the things that I miss most when it's not there is fans helping fans access fan spaces and fan knowledge. It's meant to be a collaborative tool and it's worked out really well because the Hugos market themselves as like the premier science fiction and fantasy award. And the way to keep that designation is to 
keep expanding the people who are nominated for the award, who win the award, who can take part in the war in the award as voters to just keep growing that fan base because that's how you leave your legacy. I love the spreadsheet. That is all. That's our Hugo conversation for now. I'm sure we'll have more to say once finalists are out and we can be excited about everything that's on the ballot. So if you have things that you want to let people know about, the spreadsheet will be linked in the show notes. So feel free to go and add things so nobody has to miss anything that you thought was cool. Well, after that wide-ranging discussion, Claire, where can people find you online? I am at Claire Russo on the Twitter. That very French spelling of my surname will be linked in the not description box because this not YouTube uh, in the show notes. I am also on YouTube. My channel is Claire Russo. It's a booktube channel. That's youtube.com slash user slash Claire Russo. Space Bees, thanks for sticking with us. We are very happy to be back. Thanks so much to Claire for coming on the show and filling in for Anna. Our music is by Chugi Beats and Boxcat Games. Our show art is by Ira and our transcripts are by Susan. You can see their work at fingerhappyhour.com. Thanks for listening to our show and take care of yourselves. Thank you.